In this episode, I'm joined by Grafton Tanner, who is the author of The Circle of the Snake, Nostalgia and Utopia in the Age of Big Tech, and Babbling Corpse, Vaporwave and the Commodification of Ghosts. In this episode, we discuss his latest book, The Hours Have Lost Their Clock, The Politics of Nostalgia, which will be available on October 12th this year with Repeater Books. Alongside this, we have discussions on exit, nostalgia, melancholy, agency, the cabin myth, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support Amidic's podcast and keep us going indefinitely, then please find links in the description below. Enjoy. So, Grafton Tanner, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetic's podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, we are going to be discussing your book, which actually isn't released yet. I've had the privilege of being sent a an early copy, The Hours Have Lost Their Clock, the Politics of Nostalgia, which is published by Repeater and will be available. I'm not sure if there's different dates throughout the the globe, but the date that I found was October 12th it is released. Um, so, yeah, it's a very interesting book. As you'd imagine, it's about nost- how, it, how we're approaching nostalgia on a philosophical level, how it's affecting us and the the sort of connotations of that and the, the effects of that. That it's, that it's having on society in general. I mean, and we'll get into this. Um, but before we do so, just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what it is you do, and how this book came about. Well, um, I am a professor at the University of Georgia um, in Athens, Georgia, in the United States. Um, and I've been writing for a few years now, um, doing research on, I guess, like, I would call it like the nostalgia turn of the, of the 21st century. Although that's, you know, any kind of nostalgia boom or nostalgia turn definitely predates the century that we're in currently, but um, trying to contextualize nostalgia in in our time and understanding why, um, why there, it seems to be such an excess emotion in culture and maybe trying to determine who may benefit from that and, and what the effects are on a political and social on political and social levels. Um, I wrote a book uh, in 2016 on the music genre called Vaporwave, a very uh, niche internet born kind of music genre. Uh, I was interested in it because it sort of approaches nostalgia from a um, maybe a little bit more interesting way than what we may be used to seeing across our screens today. Um, and then followed it up with sort of a collection of writings loosely about nostalgia and technology called The Circle of the Snake. And then this book, The Hours of Lost Their Clock, is a little bit more of a deeper dive into nostalgia as it shows up in Western society in a variety of locations. Um, and, you know, I've it's something that's always interested me and 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 I've dedicated at least close to the last 10 years of my life doing research on it and trying to answer the the questions, you know, what is nostalgia? Why is there so much of it? And is it a good thing to have so much of it? Okay. Okay. There's a lot of questions there. Um, Before we delve into them, I'd have to ask you the hermetics question. You can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? You know, I thought about this question because uh, I think that I think I would love to sit and listen to like some great thinkers talk about the stuff that I think about all the time, you know, but 
honestly, I, I'd be really fascinated to listen to um, some of the great like musician thinkers. I'm a musician first, like by trade and training, I guess. That's what I kind of came up in school doing and, and whatnot. And um, I've, I've long been a huge fan of um, the artist David Sylvian um, and uh, who was in, you know, Japan in like the 1980s and then eventually did like a solo career over the decades. And I, I just think he's fascinating and brilliant and he kind of does whatever he wants musically. Um, and then I'd love to, to hear him talk. I'd love to uh, hear the great Scott Walker of the Walker brothers. And then also had a kind of a fascinating and genre defy uh, genre boundary pushing, you know, uh, musical career. And then someone like Kate Bush. I mean, I'd love the three of them just to sit in a room and to hear them talk about, about music and art and the creative process. And, you know, if it happened to like the conversation steer into like other directions, politics, culture, humanity at large, that would be great too. But um, yeah, those three would be, I would love to be a fly on the wall. Okay. That's already a very um, Mark Fisher-esque room. <laughs> I'm fairly sure he, I know, I definitely know he re references David Sylvian many times and I'm fairly sure he references Kate Bush. So there's already yeah. this, uh, there's probably something deeply nostalgic about both Kate Bush and Sylvian. Definitely. I mean, David Sylvian has a song called Nostalgia and it's, it's one of my favorite tracks. It's off his, like one of his, if not maybe his first, um, solo record but that was going to be referenced in this book and i ended up not doing that but um yeah and of course i one might even also say that i'm slightly nostalgic for mark fisher as well <laughs> nostalgic nostalgic for mark fisher perhaps oh yeah that's quite sad there's already a nostalgia that his work's already been subsumed into the past i always think of his as his work as basically still being present i've never thought about mark in terms of or fisher in terms of nostalgia unfortunately well yeah and his work is is um is is present in a strange way where you know um you know i get i i talk to young people all the time especially as a professor i get to the pleasure of like teaching you know uh young people between the ages of like, you know, 17, 18 to like, you know, 21, 22, 23. And uh, many of them read Mark Fisher. And it's kind of crazy to think about that they were, you know, 10 and 11 years old when something like capitalist realism was published. Mm. Oh, no. don't do that. I know. Yeah. It's wild to think about. 2008? I think it came out in, in like 09 or 2010, but I honestly, I, I can't yeah, it was around then, definitely. Okay, 11 years. Okay, maybe we'll just gloss over that fact of <laughs> definite aging. We all get older. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that's, I mean, that's probably going to come up, that that idea of getting older but not realizing it. And then, I mean, this probably has <laughs> suddenly given me an example of nostalgia where I didn't even realize I was in it, which is probably perhaps just why the boomers are the way they are. They just, you always exist in your, the culture of your your prime years, right? Between sort of mm -hmm. fifteen and mid twenties, and then after that, you're just sort of clutching, clutching onto it. But let's not get too bleak, too sure. too soon. But I mean, I guess <laughs> yeah. I mean maybe that's a maybe that's a question to just just begin with, and it isn't from the list. But as we sort of touched on it, do you think there there has to be something inherently melancholy about nostalgia? Because obviously, you know, 
the not the word nostalgia is you I guess more commonly heard in the the way of you know um, dis- often despairingly looking back right like something's slipped between our fingers and it's now gone and we're sort of clutching onto it. Do you think that that form of melancholy is inherent to it or do you think there can be a positive nostalgia? I don't think it's inherent. And I, in fact, I think that um, a psychologist like Christine Bacho, who is kind of dedicated her career to studying nostalgia from a, from a, you know, psychological perspective, she would say that nostalgia is a crucial resource. Um, she's not the only one by, by any means. There's, many psychologists who have studied nostalgia throughout the the years who would agree that it can, you know, that it's very pro-social. It can lead to, um, you know, people can forge communities over nostalgic, having certain nostalgic things in common or nostalgic interests in common. Um, it can reorient a person in the, in the present, perhaps even orient them towards the future. Um, for a long time, it wasn't that way. You know, it was considered a disease a long time ago, and it sort of passed in and out of the medical hands over the 20th, 20th century. Um, and so it still kind of bears that trace of it being perhaps something pathological. And by when we know well that, of course, nostalgia, like any emotion, can be used in very pathological ways. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily inherent that nostalgia is despairing or or melancholic. And in fact, there are scholars who would distinguish between melancholia and nostalgia. And then it even gets really complicated when you think of mourning even as something different and then grief and even homesickness, which is usually a lot of times a cognate term for nostalgia. Um, This can be kind of tricky to tease out where one ends, where the other begins. But I, you know, um, I don't think that nostalgia is inherently um, I think it's inherently backwards looking. I don't necessarily think it's inherently an, um, a melancholic backward looking gesture. Okay. How would you, how would you define nostalgia? I think it is a yearning for a past time, or I guess I should say a past like place in time. We don't really ever yearn for a specific time period without also thinking of nostalgia as a place sort of embedded within that time period. And usually is in our minds kind of like a home in the past. It could be like our our literal home we grew up in. It could be a homeland, um, like a um, you know our country of origin or what have you, or the town we grew up in. Um, it could also be a, a fabricated home, a home that we may cobble together in retrospect as we look back. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it's important to think of it not only as yearning for a long gone, bygone time, but also as a specific place within that time. It's kind of difficult to tease out the differences there. And that's where homesickness and nostalgia have kind of switched places throughout history. Mm-hmm. One sort of meaning the other translatable across different languages as kind of the same thing. Um, and and so that's sort of how I how I uh, conceptualize it. Okay, okay. Which brings in the 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 weird thing, the weird sort of. I mean, it's happening a lot at the moment, and I'm I'm sure this probably came up in your writing on vaporwave. Uh, you know, this idea of a past which we're sort of yearning for, which was perhaps a safer place or a nicer place or, uh, you know, some somewhere homely, um, and 
when you were writing about this in the in the book, my mind instantly went to Stranger Things, which I think is one of the more peculiar examples of this. Which is, it's a TV show targeted at people, you know, I'm, let's say sixteen to mid thirties to early forties, maybe, right? Uh, but it's set in the eighties, and it's produced and pushed in such a way as to sort of bring about in the viewer a feeling of nostalgia for that time period, and yet. The majority of people who are consuming this show and many others like it didn't even exist in this time period. So what do you, could we consider this sort of an artificial nostalgia? Do you think this is, uh, sorry to bring in a uh, a dangerous word, but do you think this is healthy to have have a sort of <laughs> a yearning for basically a, a non-existent memory, basically? Um, I, I use the term healthy too a lot of times when I, talking about this thing because, you know, we know that emotions like emotions in general, but like anger and nostalgia and, and fear can be um, weaponized by all kinds of uh, really, in, you know, insidious individuals and people of questionable merit, you know, and some of them quite powerful, but um, yeah, I see, I see stranger. Okay. So, I do get this question a lot as well, like whether a person can be nostalgic for a time they didn't live through and whether or not that's something entirely different or if that's still nostalgia. I consider that still nostalgia because the reason, you know, Netflix wouldn't have greenlit Stranger Things if they didn't know it was going to really sell well. They, mm -hmm. And for a long time, um, there's there's been um, ample research indicating that an emotion like nostalgia tends to uh, people tend to make good consumer choices when they feel nostalgic. They tend to more readily part with their money when they feel nostalgic. They will, um, if, if a, if a company like Coca-Cola or something can make you feel nostalgic in their holiday ads that they run on television every, every year at the end of the year, um, then you're more likely to spend money. Now, this is what these, the psychological and consumer science research indicates. You know, who knows if that's really true? But the corporations today, the major corporations of today, they believe that, and so they've kind of made it their mission to um, add nostalgia into their palette of emotions that they want to induce in us when they're trying to sell a product. Um, and Stranger Things, of course, is basically operates the same way as, as a streaming series. Um, and so when I was first told about Stranger Things, it was by people who were, who were my age, like millennial born kind of generation, people who are now, you know, in, in the early 2020s are starting to turn 30 or whatnot. And, and they're the ones who certainly were not born in the 1980s, but it didn't matter because Stranger Things is popular among them because it, it not only presents a simplistic kind of universe of People were like, yeah, I mean, the threat sounds kind of cosmic and scary, but nothing is really at risk. I mean, it is kind mm -hmm. of like a sitcom in that way. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, it appropriates a lot of the imagery of the 1980s that many of these people who didn't live through the decade um, received secondhand through the 90s and the 2000s and, and on to today. Um and so they're not necessarily nostalgic for the 1980s as it was, like time period necessarily. More or less, they're nostalgic for the way 1980s iconography was sort of rebooted little by little throughout the 90s and the 2000s and into today. Mm -hmm. um, I remember 
there was this interview with The Weeknd who just released an album last year that's heavily kind of indebted to this sort of quasi 80s uh, genre of music, mm-hmm. uh, synthesizer heavy music. <laughs> and he was talking about how he, he said something along the lines of like, I'm so glad that people are really vibing with the 1980s now. And I mean, I, I, I kind of laughed because I thought, well, people were, you know, really into the 1980s 10 years ago in 2010 and yeah. they were into the 1980s in the early 2000s. Probably really into it in the 1980s as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you know, um, it didn't really ever die. It just kind of, it kind of like remains at this low level state. Um, I would argue that there's a lot, a little bit more of this. Um, we go through like periods where the eighties gets a little more saturated in the culture. That's probably how mm. it is right now. But, you know, I mean, uh, this, this was going on uh, 10 years ago. And so I, you know, stranger things is one of those instances where, uh, watching it is exciting for some people because they enjoy this sort of nostalgia by proxy where they didn't live through the 80s, but they get to watch a an mm-hmm. obvious fantasy of the 1980s, which seems very stable in an unstable time as ours is today. Yeah. I mean, it also beca- almost becomes like a caricature of survivability bias right there. Like what's, you know, when we, if you, if you spoke to someone from the 80s, they could probably tell you about a ton of things which didn't survive this cultural sort of, whittling down um we are left with the real intense moments of the 80s um which which often come across as kitsch so we're sort of left both with the real but it's really the this caricature vision of what both things that have come from the 80s but also sort of what we expect the 80s to be it seems so you're developing your own nostalgia but i mean perhaps it's my own um sort of pseudo schizophrenia but that seems almost sort of um like a Philip K. Dick novel or a J.G. Ballard novel, right? Your, yeah, totally. your, uh, your, your memories are then being formed by this false nostalgia. And I wonder, you know, I would just, I guess the point is that uh, perhaps nostalgia used to be a bit healthier because people came from times which, you know, I've said this before in this podcast, but if you were born um, after the World War II, you sort of have that tether to that as the event of your life. And then the 60s, 70s, 80s all seem to have, and the 90s, all seem to have big events around them. And then from 2000 onwards, we've sort of been a bit lost in terms of having tethers of history and we're just constantly reeling back to other times. Um, And do you think it is, do you think there's perhaps a greater propensity towards indulgence in nostalgia now? Because we, you know, the famous no future remark that we are in this unstable time. So we yearn, we yearn, that is our our stability is in the past. Um, yes. And I would say that, uh, when Marco J who wrote, um, non-places, uh, great, like 1990s anthropological text. Um, and when she came up with this idea of the non-place as this sort of place of commerce that is sort of anonymous and exists all over the world, like, like a McDonald's or a, or a shopping mall or something. Um, he said that, you know, after World War II or, uh, or, you know, during the post-war era, you've got a number of people coming up who are hearing these stories about the Great War and these great major events and or even like maybe even the Great Depression um, that are passed down to generations, mainly into the boomer boomer generation. And, you know, the, the, the way the stories and the way that they're told are so amazing and tremendous that the next generation feels this pressure to like, you know, live up to it. You know, we'll never mm. be able to fight the great war. We'll never be able to struggle through the depression and like live within history and these major events. 
And he says that from there, there, there comes this um, fascination with trying to like ascribe great meaning to things so that we can have that feeling of being able to like, you know, maybe live a little bit more within histories or everything that happens is compared back to the last great big thing, World War II or what have you or is at least given some kind of meaning in order to make it feel great and powerful of an event like World War II. And I think that that feeling has only really kind of increased over the years to the point where the most mundane, ridiculous, everyday kind of happenings that occur in the digital age, um, we try to ascribe some major meaning to it and ask, okay, how is history going to remember this? How are we going to, you know, whatever. And and so the the tendency is to always look back to the last great big thing and compare it to that. And that is itself sort of a constant, you know, longing back for that moment. And that's not to say that the any kind of major crisis of meaning occurred in the post-war era, but I would I would I would argue that that's sort of when it when it really began and only got worse in this, you know, what we may consider a, a sort of a postmodern period that we're that we're living in. On top of that, though, you're correct in that uh living in a time in which it feels like that there's no hope for the future because of, you know, economic issues or major environmental issues. Every, everything. Um, yeah, everything. Yeah. I mean, it piles on. Right. And I yeah. think that we're absolutely a, a normal reaction to that is to look back to the past for some kind of stability. And that is one of the major reasons why um, young people, uh, people born, you know, in, in the 21st century, I think that's a number. Of, I think that's a major reason why many of them um, uh, are really familiar with nostalgia as an emotion, is because they're having to live in a in a in a time in which it doesn't feel like that there is any future coalescing at all. Mm. Do you think? Do you think that's healthy? The nostalgia is as an escape. Do you think that's? Yeah, I think that it's it's not a good thing to have single emotions propagated around the clock all the time. I mean, think about it. I always use anger as an example when I talk about nostalgia. We, we tend to forget the nostalgias. I mean, I would, I would define it as an emotion. Not everybody would do that, but I think of it as a human emotion. Um, and so I think about anger a lot of times in relation to it because anger is a little simpler. We all, we're not as hung up on anger as we are with nostalgia. We don't question its validity, even though we may not always like to feel angry all the time. And I think that's important. Like think about, you know, I mean, in the United States, we have infotainment like Tucker Carlson on Fox News and, and CNN, which all they do is kind of generate anger and fear around the mm -hmm. clock. And you can get kind of trapped in an emotional feedback loop with these mm -hmm. sorts of entertainment, which is what they are ultimately, um, and, and get to a point where you are an angry, fearful person mm -hmm. all the time. And that is, it's just not good. It's not always good to like, lead with those emotions all the time, just mm -hmm. as it's not good to eat the same thing all the time. You know, we want to have a variety of emotional experiences. So the, the issue isn't that we should turn off our emotions and think logically. It's that we have to kind of decide which are the best emotions for us at a certain time, you know, and, and that could be difficult to do. But there's a lot of research that indicates that, uh, you know, fear draws attention. I mean, the news media knows this well. Um, Donald Trump knew it well. Uh, and so does anger. So does nostalgia. Um, being in a low level nostalgic state all the time. Yeah, it's not good. You know, uh, it, it could make a person feel really bad over time, you know, and it might make you endorse policies and that that are not healthy for um, a democracy. Hmm. Okay. 
Okay. What 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 happens? Do you, what happens to people's minds? Do you think when they are almost constantly in nostalgia? I mean, I think we see a lot of it now. I mean, you you outline nostalgia. You say you call it simple nostalgia. Is this idea of always looking back to the past as if it was better than the future, right? So, and that's I believe the definition you give for simple nostalgia. Do you think that in staying in simple nostalgia, you almost always remain a child, right? You you, you just can't really deal with the present but is that because we we don't really have a present we we there's nothing here i guess the maybe the problem is that our present has been built from just compounded nostalgias and we don't we have nothing of our own well the simple nostalgia uh term is actually one that um fred davis came up with in like the 1970s he wrote a book called uh yearning for yesterday and uh he's one of the um one of the first to really write extensively and rigorously about nostalgia. And he was a, he was a sociologist. Um, that book, by the way, is nowhere to be found. I mean, I'm only ever am able to find it um, at my local library um, at, at uh, the university of Georgia. I wish someone would, would republish it because I think it's such a, a crucial um, source for understanding, not just the emotion nostalgia, but also understand how people were writing about it in the 1970s. And let me tell you, you know, he talked about this nostalgia wave that was occurring in the 70s. It sounds very, uses very much the same language as we do today, you know, because mm. um, the late 1970s was itself a time of, of you're looking back and longing. But um, he, he comes up with this sort of three-part uh, breakdown of nostalgia. One of them is a simple nostalgia, he calls it, which is, as you say, something that sort of, uh, um, you know, looks back in. In, in longing as being better than the present and what have you. And um, I don't, you know, and I, I write about this in the book, but my issue with what Davis did and, and what other scholars have done since is trying to slice nostalgia up into like even categories and mm -hmm. saying, well, these are all the different types, you know, and these mm -hmm. are the different types and you're going to feel one of them. I think that like that doesn't, I don't think that's very productive because different cultures are going to slice up the nostalgic feel like this affective feel differently, depending on, mm -hmm. you know, what they believe. And also the, the, I mean, you're talking about we're, we're just around a hundred years separated from when nostalgia was a disease. Mm -hmm. And when, when, you know, physicians thought that this was something that could kill you and um, criminologists tried to figure out whether um, criminals were acting out of, having nostalgia and, and, and what that sentence need to look like to make sure that they were punished accordingly. Um, and so the, the, to, to, I'm hesitant to come up with absolute types and, and instead to think about it as like different kinds of shades or, 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 um, you know, like, uh, ways that it might be considered in just in a brief context and then maybe changed over time to something else. You know, we may end up in a period in which nostalgia is considered again, completely pathological or maybe end up in a period in which it's considered totally healthy, you know, who knows, but um, that's my only hes hesitation with thinking about it as absolute types. Probably the, 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 the one that most people know about is um, the, what Svetlana Boym did when she wrote the future of nostalgia in about 2000, it came out in 2000 mm -hmm. and she distinguished between these two types they are called reflective and restorative nostalgia. That, that sort of, um, it's like the good and the bad nostalgia, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and that 
became a, a popular way to, to conceptualize it. But even she says in the book, they're not absolute types. She said they're tendencies. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Okay. But this, this sort of looking back, this, this, we're dealing with history. We're dealing with, I guess, one subjective understanding of history and you know, this idea that there was a better time or there was a worse time or, you know, looking back to something wholesome. Do you, do you think that this, in itself develops a for you know an idea of what the present should be what the future should be like in terms of you develop this sort of normality you're almost um in being nostalgic you then yearn for a future which could hopefully fulfill that desire but actually will never will be able to because what you're yearning for isn't really a seems to be that you're not yearning for a material or an event or an idea or a physical thing that you can get you're you're yearning for a time which is gone so it's almost like there's always a paradox with nostalgia that you are basically desiring something, but you implicitly know you can never really get it. Well, maybe because <laughs> if you know what I mean, because if you, uh, I, I really do think that between 2016 and 2020 in the United States, at least mm. that there were wealthy elites who supported Donald Trump who really believed that he was going to return the country to a period in which they were able to kind of do whatever they wanted, say whatever they wanted, not have to worry about things like identity politics, be able to be as rich as they wanted, get rid of this, you know, green new deal and climate change legislation, get rid of that for good. Mm. Go back to the days of oil and industry when thing was, you know, everybody, you know, the, the, the oil derricks were the, the very symbol of progress or what have you. Um, I, I really do think that, you know, um, mm -hmm. and maybe I'm wrong, but I just, I, I would imagine that they saw him as the way back. Um, and I do think that that, that is itself, a, um, an issue with having a, 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 a perpetual nostalgic sort of position or perspective is that you're going to eventually want like a return to the past <laughs> or a, a turn to the future, uh, mm -hmm. to alleviate this like constant longing and we don't need to have either of those all the time. I think about like, you know, big tech, for example, is uh, fetishizes the future and their rhetoric all the mm -hmm. time and have done so and sort of made their money off of promising to deliver the future. Well, that's not good, right? Because you got plenty of people who live in the present who need some help now, <laughs> you know, and we don't want to always think just about the future. So I think the past is a crucial resource to long for in order to help to understand and try to build a more equitable future. Um, but it just depends on sort of how one goes about doing it. You know, if we just longed and yearned for, um, you know, the 1950s because we wanted, you know, domestic housewives and, you know, and, and, and into identity politics and, and a pre-civil rights era, then that is obviously not good. Mm. You know what I mean? But if we wanted to look back to understand, you know, uh, well, you know, how did we end up getting to a point where all these corporations around the world, these multinational corporations just don't pay taxes anymore? Mm -hmm. And you got to figure like Jeff Bezos who exists, you know, because of certain kinds of tax laws, what happened? Um, some of that is just plain old, like, you know, having a historical literacy, but there is some yearning involved. And, um, and I think it's crucial for, especially those groups who have been um, marginalized for, uh, 
for you know centuries to be able to look back and yearn for not the time, not the not the conditions that led to their marginalization, but for uh, you know perhaps communities that survived and came together under assault. Mm-hmm. Do you think this is where like consumer culture generally comes in as a sort of a bastardization of nostalgia? You know that what you're talking about there is using nostalgia as a uh, a positive tool to recognize things in the past and be able to actually change the future whereas sort of consumer nostalgia seems to be primarily for a a feeling which can be fulfilled via purchase right so stranger things sort of leans heavily on D&D and arcade games and synthesizer type it's very difficult to define what it is but we all know what it is which is which is sort of I know that sounds like a cop-out but I think we can all define what the nostalgic items of the 80s seem to be and they our culture tends to sort of mutate into a modern version of something old, which is that, you know, a, a retro finish to our purchases. Mm-hmm. But then we, we know we don't use nostalgia for any other reason other than a, sort of a, a, a kitsch ideal purchase. Yeah, I think that the question that we have to ask when it comes to like how corporations use nostalgia is when we have to understand that that you know, we're never going to remember the past completely. Mm-hmm. We're going to go through life in periods of time in which things are kind of bad. And we're going to look back and go, man, things were kind of better back then. And we we might snap out of it eventually and go, well, you know, but I know it really wasn't. But maybe in that moment, that was a crucial emotional gesture. The question is really, what kind of pa- what kinds of pasts are we consuming? Who's at the other end of this? You know, who's at the other mm-hmm. end of Stranger Things? You know, is it just, <laughs> you know, is it completely harmless fun? You know, does it teach certain things about history? Yeah, totally. Obviously, it whitewashes history. You, you know, it gentrifies history ultimately. Um, but uh, you know, the people who are swooned by "Make America Great Again" in the United States—that sounds good to them. But really, being able to stop and go, okay, but what does that really mean to be great? To make America great again? Who is behind a slogan such as this? What does such a thing look like? You know, is it sustainable over the long term? And I think being able to stop and ask those questions as a public is super important instead of just, because let me tell you something, the, the, um, in electoral politics, the candidates know this. They are taught how to induce certain kinds of emotions in large populations. So they've asked these questions themselves. They know it. Corporations do as well. They know they've done the focus groups. They know what's going to sell. Um, and uh, they think that consumers are all just a bunch of idiots and apathetic and just kind of blindly go about purchasing and casting votes, you know. Um, but that's not totally true. It just takes the ability to be able to understand that, that what's occurring, what's being worked on, um, which happens to most of the time be really simple, knee-jerk kind of emotional reactions, and asking, you know, what past are we consuming ultimately? And is that a good thing? Mm-hmm. Is this what you mean by the medium is the memory? Right. He, he, he who controls the memories controls the future. Maybe so. Yeah. I, in particular, that, that phrase was sort of, um, in the book as a way to think about, um, uh, media as like memory facilitators, um, mm-hmm. just in general. So in that chapter, I talk about, um, you know, the, fascination with like vinyl records in the 2010s and and with VHS tape trading but also with social media as a uh, as a, a a technology that facilitates memory and also serves as kind of an engine of nostalgia 
Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So, do you think that's done literally for the sake of further production? So, just produce a certain sort of artificial nostalgia so they can sort of keep pushing it, or do you think that there's there is nostalgic dead ends in a way? I think that's. I mean, you know, Shell Oil knows that if they use an old Shell logo, <laughs> that it's going to attract attention. You know, mm-hmm. um, Disney knows that if it can. Uh, you know, sort of appropriated nostalgia for its own intellectual property. It's going to draw attention. Um, Instagram knew that if we, you know, if we give people these filters to put over their really bad digital photos, cause it's like, you know, 2012. And so the, the iPhone doesn't take good photos. It looks kind of like crap. And so if we give them these filters, Hey, what do you know? It kind of makes it seem kind of dated and analogy and, and Polaroidy. Um, then they know that people are going to really enjoy doing that. And, and we all did. That's why we all got Instagram accounts. But um, some of this is, of course, just like just accidental, you know, some forms of like nobody created the the cassette tape necessarily as a way to like, you know, induce nostalgia among large groups of people. This was just a way for people to have recorded music and and, and take it with them and listen to it. But over time, it becomes sort of this nostalgic kind of talisman um, mainly because it's a specific technology, media technology that was around for a while and then kind of got edged out by another one. It's, it's a process called media change. And there's a um, great researchers who, who write about this. One of them is Manuel Mankey. I absolutely recommend checking out his work. Um, but he writes about media nostalgia and, and, and in a way to wonder why we tend to be nostalgic for, for things like cassette tapes or old media. And it's simply because they became part of our life world, he says, and then they eventually sort of disappeared and, and get replaced with something else. Um, and so you could look at a time period like the rise of streaming, like Spotify and um, Apple Music and what have you. Um, and, and you can see where when that started to become popular, Older technologies like vinyl records suddenly also became popular. It's a way for people to kind of stabilize themselves by looking back to an older medium in a time of great uh, media change. So some of it's accidental. Like sometimes the nostalgia just kind of gets accidentally produced. Same thing with shopping malls. Like the mm. mall doesn't get wasn't created in order to make people nostalgic, and yet people are nostalgic for malls. Yeah, and airports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of an overlap between liminal spaces, those non-spaces that we talked about before, the in-between spaces of life and nostalgia, waiting rooms, airports, places with lots of fluorescent light, it seems to be. Oh, yeah, <laughs> terrible lighting. Yeah, terrible lighting that gives you headaches mm. and you don't really know what reality you're in. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Why do, you, why do you think it is then that people don't see the the artificial reality that they're in, right? You, you know, let's take, for instance, Disney produces its own nostalgia of something that someone is already sort of bought into how can't why what why is it, is it just nostalgia so comforting that we we don't want to really enter into the a level where we go hang on this isn't something that really exists in my own memory that's a good question and it, it sometimes it's difficult for me to answer because um i uh you know i, I I think about like D- Disney films and um, Marvel films, and these are these are movies that I'm, you know, I have I'm not the kind of person who's watched every single one, and maybe one day I'll sit around and, and do that to be able to have a well-rounded understanding of like yeah. the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's weird. You know? I've, it's weird. I've thought about I, 
detest those films, but I've thought about doing the same thing because it almost seems like the Western canon now. Like I need, yeah, yeah. I need to, I need to be able to touch on all these awful references. I think it would it would make uh, me a, a little more knowledgeable about um, maybe trying to understand how the storylines themselves reflect broader kind of uh, powerful interests, maybe. Um, <laughs> but I've I've seen enough, you know, and I had a I had a good buddy of mine actually at a period of time watch all of them, and and I was I'm like when you started, you'll never be able to stop because they'll never stop making them, mm. um, but. You know, I think that that people see Marvel films and, and Disney films in these kind of universe franchise. I mean, I say Marvel and Disney films. You know, Marvel's a, a is a holding of Disney. Um, they enjoy watching these films and and seeing kind of a a really long story play out over time, mm-hmm. almost like a soap opera or something. Mm-hmm. And watching the characters interact and watching them jump from universe to universe and communicate with one another. Uh, I think about, there's this film called um, Ralph wrecks the internet. Is that what it's called? It's a, it's a it's a Disney sequel it's to wreck, 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 wreck Ralph. Ralph. Right, yeah. Yeah. And so he goes into the internet and in the sequel and um, you know, it's just like, it's crazy. It's, it's mm. star Wars characters and Marvel characters and mm. Disney characters and Coca-Cola billboards. I think maybe not product placement, literally everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where like all the Disney princesses are hanging out together and C-3PO walks in and is like, you're needed in the other room or whatever. Mm. And it's, it's <laughs> crazy baffling to watch. You know, I watched some of it um, just to be able to see it. And it's, it's twisted my head around, but mm. I think people enjoy watching kind of the, um, like the old Godzilla movies when all the Godzilla monsters were in the same film at the same time and they all battle. And that's really kind of this maximalist entertainment that some people really enjoy. But what, what really is going on in, in a film like Ralph breaks the internet or whatever it's called um, is Disney kind of like flexing its muscles a little bit and saying, look at all the stuff we own. Mm. We don't got to ask anybody permission. Mm. Okay. We just got to put them in the film and we know that people are going to love to see C-3PO talking with Spider-Man or whoever. Mm. It's really just them flexing their holdings ultimately. And, and, and uh, a consequence of that is um, the nostalgic feeling for more. So after they get done watching the movie, people are like, let's see the next one where we get to see the next, you know, old character. This, this yeah. is, I mean, this is interesting, right? Because I had the same experience with them. Um, I'm hoping you've seen it, but Ready Player One. Oh, absolutely. You've, yeah, of course, right. Now, what I love about that film, which I think is um, on par with Apocalypse Now, is um, <laughs> is that you know you're in for a treat when it begins with Van Halen's jump. There's something about that absolutely blasting out, and you know you're entering into something which is going to be sort of consumeristly sublime. But I had the same experience with, you know, I haven't seen that Wreck-It Ralph, um, the magnum opus of Disney Um <laughs> I haven't seen that. I'll have to watch it. But I felt when I was watching Ready Player One at certain moments, well, most of the moments, because it's such a barrage on the senses. It's sort of the cinematic equivalent of Las Vegas. But I felt legitimately, and this sounds ridiculous, but I felt legitimately schizophrenic, right? In the definition of schizophrenia where there's so much, you know, the one of the definitions of schizophrenia, at least, that comes from Ernest Becker is you, there's so much information that you simply can't communicate what is actually going on in your reality right and the other end of that spectrum is autism where you have absolutely defined rules and so there seems to be 
a schizophrenic effect from these films of of this like multitude of nostalgias coming in and your your brain you don't really know what to do with them other than you just have this sort of fleeting understanding that these things are good because they are nostalgic but there's actually really no substance to it other than it's like a cardboard cutout of nostalgia right it's like mm-hmm. this is good simply because it's nostalgia i don't know if, and and i don't know how so i guess they have to keep going right they can't drop the they can't drop the mic because then people will realize there's nothing there really so they have mm-hmm. to just keep producing it i don't know where i'm going with this but other than that these films are terrible that seems to be my, yeah. <laughs> seems to be yeah. my... <laughs> at the end of the day yeah i you know it's like part of my cr- criticism of it is that i just really don't like the films you know mm. and i think sometimes sometimes you know uh we're afraid as critics to just outright say like i just don't like this you know and um it's one of the reasons why i love as hamra the film critic is because he he doesn't shy away from that you know and um and for me, I'm the same way. I, you know, I don't like these, but, but so what's going on with them? Like, why do they exist? You look a little bit deeper and you go, oh, okay, gotcha. Well, that's what's going on. Um, they, uh, you know, I, well, watch it. So like Ready Player One, okay. That's mm. absolutely the same thing as, as this Ralph movie. Um, Ready Player One is a game, okay? Ultimately, it looks like a film, but it's a game. And the game is to spot the Easter eggs and the hidden references. And that's it, you know? Mm. And um and they have to be recognizable, identifiable, fun references. Richard Brody did the uh, did a I think he was the one who reviewed it for the New Yorker and said that, you know, this is in Ready Player One. This is a past that doesn't have like Patti Smith. It doesn't have punk. It doesn't really have uh, early hip hop. You know, it just has Van Halen's Jump and Jurassic Park and you know whatever mm. else that that can be. You know. Um, referenced easily and cheaply by Steven Spielberg and his team. And so, but it really is a, 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 a process of spotting the Easter eggs. And after that film came out, even before, you know, but, but certainly afterwards, you know, you could go to YouTube and, and look up Ready Player One Easter eggs. And there's just all these videos, tons mm. and tons of videos about here. Here is the definitive list of all the Easter eggs. This video is like 30 minutes long. Here's the definitive list, you know, 25,000 Easter eggs in this film or however many, and you could just watch them endlessly and you could go to the movie and like, how many did I find? And then I could look on the, on the YouTube video and, oh, I missed, I missed these 1000 Easter eggs. Oh my gosh. I'll have to watch it again. (laughs) And that's the point of it. And if you aren't used to watching movies in that way, the film, like a film like Ready Player One is really actually boring because uh, it, it seems like you said, almost like information overload. Mm-hmm. You got to go in there heavily caffeinated and with a sharp eye and, and look for them. And I really do think that that is a, a consequence of, you know, um, cinematic universes, which are just basically, that's just a euphemism for franchises, you know, like uh, Marvel and Lucasfilm and anything by Disney is that, they turn, uh, they sort of, uh, you know, prioritize the Easter egg hunting over any kind of plot development. And mm-hmm. then that becomes the movie itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it makes for a really strange exper- experience ultimately um, and turns cinema into kind of like a, just like a game basically. Yeah. Searching, like you're going in searching for meaning, which is the which is another symptom of schizophrenia. So, so sort of finding meaning where there isn't any. Um, how strange, but uh, but equally, 
I I hope they release the the second one in cinema because I I want to see if they can somehow turn that up. Right? What's what's mm. next? You know what what can possibly be next in terms of that alteration of cinema? You know, you're talking about the sequel to Ready Player One. I haven't read the book. I haven't read the. Second I haven't either. One, no. But um, Laura Hudson did a review of it for, I believe it was Slate, and she just she just destroyed it in the mm. review as she should have. And and I haven't read it, but reading the review and reading what she was uh, pointing out, just terrific. I recommend checking out the review, but I will definitely be seeing the second one. Um, could I have the same questions as you? Yeah, like where, where, I think I think he's already got the rights. Spielberg's got the rights for the second one, so I'm sure it will oh, go I'm ahead. Sure. Yeah, and I've heard Spielberg's just a, as an aside. I've heard his filmmaking process now is everything's sort of set up and ready. He gets there, the actors are ready, and he's like he basically walks into a room and just grabs the camera. There's like no setting up. It's just like you're there like for five minutes, like this shot done. So there's something strangely sterile about that, about yeah. everything, about all of it. That's unfortunate. I mean, he, like George Lucas, is himself, you know, a franchise and a brand at this point. It's unfortunate mm. because George Lucas is obviously a great director. Mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg, obviously, I think a great director. I mean, a competent director. You know, I mean, you don't have the blockbuster without these two figures. They they knew what they knew how to make a film. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Um, but it's just that they, um, you know, prioritized other things, namely profits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a shame because when I go back and watch George Lucas's first film, T is it THX one one three eight? That's just like it's one of it's a, just such an underappreciated sci fi film. But um, actually, that that can I can use that film to segue very roughly into something I wanted to bring up, which like THX one one three eight being in this sort of mechanical hell where everything's supplied for you artificially, and he pushes everything to escape to break out into. The, the sort of stereotypical nature right at the end, and this is something that you bring up later in the book, which which is something that I've thought about loads. You know, the you you frame it as the cabin myth, right? The mm-hmm. the idea that the modern world's got so bad, you just you have this radical exit, a Thoreauian Walden cabin or Ted Kaczynski cabin exit, where you absolutely draw the line, like right, I'm over here, you're over there, and this is something you're you, you're it seems you're really against this as an idea. Yeah, because I think that it, so yes, the cabin myth is is this idea that um, a person can, maybe even should, um, escape civilization um, and the trope is usually to escape to a cabin in the woods mm-hmm. in order to live a freer life, uh, get back to nature and everything, whatever that might mean. Um, it might mean living uh, off the land, um, homesteading perhaps, uh, and, and being with one's thoughts. And typically the end result of, a, of, of this trope is that the, the figure, um, you know, writes a book or something about their experience and like, and then gives it back to civilization, comes back down from the mountain and says, mm-hmm. Hey, look, I've written the book. Here's how you should live. Um, and, and I think that the, the desire is for ultimate escape, like to, to get off the grid completely escape to a cabin in the woods and, uh, and to be completely off the land and away from the world and what have you. Mm-hmm. And that anything less than that, like if you're just a few miles from town, like Thoreau was, and then it's like, oh, well, he didn't really escape, you know, and he, 
So we shouldn't really listen to him and, and, and what have you. Um, I just think that's such a tired critique and I'm not like, you know, some like major fan of Thoreau, but like, you know, there's nothing wrong with the fact that he was like relatively close to town Mm -hmm. because is it really like who ultimately benefits from a complete and total escape from civilization? Well, only the individual, you know, and to try to pretend like it's some kind of um, great political statement uh, for groups of people, for this one person to go live alone in the woods, to get a little perspective and then give us a book out of it. It, it doesn't seem to to do anything for us, but it does everything for the person who's left, you know? Mm. Um, and a lot of the times that they, that they leave, you know, they're, they're saying one thing, one thing and doing another, you know, they're talking all about how great it is to live completely isolated from the civilization. And yet they rely pretty much off civilization mm-hmm. uh, to be able to do this. So I just think that the, the, the trope is, um, I think it's a fundamental human desire to escape. Mm-hmm. I think that it's crucial to be able to get away once in a while. But um, I, I do not think that it is anything but sort of a selfish gesture to be able to just do it completely and then, and then pretend like it's, a, it's something that is, um, I guess, like political for the rest of the civilization that you've left behind. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what, I mean, it, what here is the relation to nostalgia? Because the uh, escape, the, the cabin myth is itself a nostalgic sort of desire, mm. a, a way to sort of live um, simply off the land, back to nature, all of these sort of back to uh, kind of orientations. I use um, in the book, I talk about Dick Prinicky, who built a cabin in the woods in like the late 1960s mm. and lived there until the 80s. Um, and then talked a little bit about... Um, the uh, editor, William Allen White, whose father took all of them. This is like the um, late 19th century, early 20th century, I believe. Uh, took them all to a cabin in the woods to live. Um, nobody really wanted to go, but the whole family had to go because the dad wanted to go relive his golden his, his golden days of youth when he grew up himself in sort of a cabin or what have you. And this was, of course, a good 60, 70 or more years before Dick Prinicky did it in the 1960s, but then Mark Boyle did it. Mm-hmm. And around the 2010s, he mm-hmm. started the, um, the free economy sort of group in which he tried to live completely without money and then decided that wasn't enough and wanted to live completely off the land. He came out with a book just a few years ago. Oh, yeah, The Way, uh, about the way Home. Yeah. The Way Home, yeah. Um, and, you know, an inter- he's obviously enough on the grid to do interviews, you know, and so he's done interviews about like, you know, no, I well, think, I think they will have to go there to him. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, he talks a little bit in his interviews about how, well, I don't have to worry about, you know, the world much, you know, I don't have to like, you know, um, worry about political things like Brexit or or this and that. Luckily, I just get to that just doesn't you know affect me. And I have to agree with someone like Ginny O'Dell, who wrote in How to Do Nothing about um, the problem with that, which uh, tends to be that those people who observe a problem with the world and then their first indication is to leave it, those are people that we need to actually remain in the world with us because they may see things that other people don't. I mean, they obviously observe enough of a problem to be able to want to leave it. Mm -hmm. But those are people, I think, who are crucial in order to try to you know, build a more egalitarian society for people instead of just leaving it, you know, altogether and then giving interviews occasionally about how great it is to live off the land. It just doesn't hold water for me. Hmm. So, I mean, it's, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm of the the sort of the opposite disposition. I'm I guess I'm a a lever. Like I would probably just leave if I had the means to. And I sort of do respect Mark Boyle because I know one of his primary reasons was sustainability. And people sort of said, "Oh, he's so privileged," but actually, well, he has gone as far as anyone could go. I think in terms of living a sustainable life. So I sort of respect him for that. You know, he hasn't gone like to a cheap country to do. It. He hasn't flown and. You know, I, I just have a, I have a fair amount of respect for him because I think his primary goal was sustainability in terms of the environment first. And of course, the argument is like, well, shouldn't he be doing more to like promote environmentally friendly means to do things? But I think he realized in his years of doing activism that it wasn't changing anything and that it has to start with you. Yeah, and I, I see that for sure. I mean, I think that my issue with... Um, taking sort of an individual who leaves society approach is that uh, when you, when you think about the amount of people who have done damage to the climate in the past Mm -hmm. 20 or so years, we're not talking necessarily about Mark Boyle. I'm sure if Mark Boyle lived in society, he would have a relatively small carbon footprint Mm -hmm. compared to the, you know, top 0.1% of people on earth who are the wealthiest you know, handful of people who own as much wealth as the poorer half of the rest of the entire world. Um, Cause I fly, I flew just a month ago, you know, mm. but I'm not Jeff Bezos with the private plane necessarily. And I think there's a distinction that we have to make between the people who have done more damage to the environment for decades, mm-hmm. like the Koch brothers, for example, um, than any than anybody who maybe lives in civilization relatively like normally. I mean, I think it's a trade off. Like be in the society with us to help us try to figure out what we might be able to do about it, uh, and have a carbon footprint that you know like may not be completely net zero if you were like living in a cabin in the woods. But without you, and just like your interviews and 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 being able to live somewhat sustainably on your own. I feel like we lose like someone in the fight necessarily. And, and I, I, that's, that is my issue. I think with the ultimate, with the ultimate leave. Hmm. Okay. I don't know where to go here. Cause I like, I disagree and I don't like disagreeing with guests. Cause I like to, you know, get your ideas out there. But I, with the Bezos thing, I, it's uh, the whole idea of a top 1% of people who like, in terms of like, you could say Bezos is top 1% of carbon production because he owns Amazon, which is, I imagine very wasteful, etc. But then my argument is always, well, who is purchasing their things? Like they would, it wouldn't be sold unless. So I always think that you, the root, the root seems to be like double-ended root of the problem. There is this massive conglomerate which is obviously pushing adverts, which are in some sense back to nostalgia, uh, artificially like playing with our emotions to get us to purchase things. But equally, there is agency on the consumer to say, like, well, I'm just not going to purchase these things anymore. In the same way that uh, as much as I don't think many Westerners want to hear it, if you're for the environment, um, I don't... If you're really trying to be environmentally friendly and lower your carbon footprint, then I don't think you should fly, right? Like, because, uh, you know, there's that increases your carbon footprint so much, it's, it's mad. So, that, you know, to what degree do you need those holidays? Um, I just think it's a, it's a sacrifice not many people want to make. They want do to- you have a smartphone? Yeah, I do have a smartphone, yeah. But I don't, <laughs> but I don't fly, I don't go on holiday. Yeah, um, well, 
the data centers that power our smartphones and hold all the data mm. that these companies like Amazon keep like, um, you know, sort of producing out of us um, has about the same carbon footprint as the airline industry. So we, we live in a, in a situation yeah. in which like, there's kind of nothing safe, you know, pretty much most of the stuff that we do has a, a pretty horrible effect on the environment. It has led some people to, to really place the blame on human beings entirely. This is mm. kind of a, a, a debate between different sorts of uh, environmental philosophers. But then you look at Oxfam reports that have come out over the past few years that indicate that you've got a number of people who are doing nothing like what, um, you know, Charles and David Koch and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk uh, do on a daily basis. Hmm. Okay, maybe I should like hammer my argument down to that I just don't think it's possible to eat your cake and have it too, right? So I'd yeah, I have a smartphone. I'm not going to deny, and I'm also talking to you over, over Zoom and powering many, you know, whatever these these power stations are, right? That keep the internet going actually at a loss, apparently. Um, but to what I mean is like to eat your cake and have it too. Is in terms of you want to be environmentally friendly, and I think there is things that we're doing now with the technology that we have now and the innovation that we have now that we literally will have to stop doing if we want to be environmentally friendly or find. Uh, a more sustainable means to do it which doesn't exist yet so until that exists it's like we you there's sacrifices to be made if you're sincere about uh stopping helping fight climate change right and i i mean i i agree with that you know and i think that for a figure like mark boyle um i'm not sure what his contribution will do ultimately um, against a juggernaut like like Amazon, you know, for example, not that we all have to be against it all the time, but if we're serious, as you say, about doing something about it, and there's some kind of agency on the consumer, um, this is something that has to happen among lots of people. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, like many people love Amazon, and they love getting free shipping, and they love getting things fast. And that is a hard thing to try to beat out of people just as much as they love Starbucks and mm -hmm. and really exploitative, uh, you know, supply chains that create our phones, for example. Um, and it, it's, it would take almost like a massive, maybe even like a, a public health campaign, for example, to be able to get people disgusted enough with these things to stop using them. At the same time, though, the reason why these things exist is because of uh, uh, several years of, of um, systematic deregulation in the West, you can't have Apple or Amazon without uh, really lax regulatory laws, mm -hmm. just as you can't have a film like Ready Player One <laughs> without um, lax copyright laws. You know, every few years, Disney lobbies to have the copyright extended. Why? Well, so that none of their intellectual property falls in the public domain. Mm. As long as they keep lobbying to have that extended, well, then they can keep making, you know, one Wreck-It Ralph movie after the other. With Star Wars, you know, characters without having to worry about them ever really going away, um, and so I think that we have to think about it from both ends. Uh, and one of those is to 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 try to um, you know organize enough to where our elected leaders know exactly what it is that is happening to the environment. But that's hard to do when they uh, have certain interest at stake, if you will, um, and less sort of the Dick Cheney syndrome where, you know, he happens to be with Halliburton and yet we invade for oil. You know what I mean? Um, 
and uh, that's a really hard thing to do. Um, so unless that unless those uh, systems of power start to reorient, we're stuck with a really bad in a really bad position, mm-hmm. which is that I got to have my smartphone for work, mm-hmm. and yet it destroys the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean this this is to go back to the road. This is actually this is something that's come up on with a guy Matt Cahoon, uh, who I think. Is- mentioned your book before we mm. we mentioned the throw thing before because to mention like so one of the other ted kaczynski right the unabomber he goes off to a cabin but his exit he was like it's gonna be pure right i'm going back to eden and he was in his cabin and he was fine and then motorbikes started coming past planes started going overhead and he could hear uh tree felling like 20 miles away you know, these tiny things from modernity started coming in to his Eden, which he'd imagined. Uh, and that was his justification for the horrendous murders, right? Um, because he he had developed this, I guess, this pure nostalgia in his mind, and it had been invaded by basically the inevitable. Whereas me and Matt mentioned before that actually Thoreau, even though people criticize him, they say, oh, he's only like three or four miles away from town. It proves that the the process of exit, this cabin myth, can be developed but it's a mental thing as in Thoreau maintained a relationship with the thing right that he sought to escape and that seems to be you know to go like right I'm off that thing doesn't even exist anymore well you're just setting yourself up to be basically ruined by it because you already know how malicious and horrible and parasitic the modern world can be so you know full well there's probably inevitably going it's going to like infect your your dream so you need to develop a relationship which is like a mental exit. And uh, that seems to be what we need is like people. So, And it seems to be what you're alluding to is like we need Mark Boyle's hut like on the street. Right. We need to walk past that way of living every day because he's not doing that much good. But his books is coming back. So that's something. But it would be interesting to go back to the era of like people living like that within towns. But then, you know, tons mm-hmm. of planning permission and blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, like you say, being able to being able to pass by that and see that and 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 knowing that, uh, you know, and, and I, I feel the same way about about Thoreau. Um, and it's uh, it, I think that it, there has to be a. A shift in how we understand escape and to understand, you know, that it's absolutely crucial. Mm. You know, I, I wrote this in the book, you know, there's there's a lot of fun watching Back to the Future. And all these old nostalgic <laughs> films when when the pandemic started and lockdown happened and everybody wanted to watch all these old films. Like there's a lot of like there's a lot of comfort in that in a time in which like things are really bad, people are dying, you don't want to face the world, you know. Mm. Uh, when you go through intense personal grief or even being one with a group of people who are all grieving together, um, sometimes you just want to watch something really stupid on TV. And sometimes you just want to get away from it all. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that it's, it's healthy to tell a person that you can't ever do that. At the same time though, I think that we absolutely have to have uh, at least one foot in the world. Um, and that most people do want to return, you know, they want to be around their friends and they want to sort of like have a community of, of, of sorts. And um, but the, the pressure for a person to escape completely and that romanticization of it isn't always really uh well, it's definitely not always truthful, um, and it oftentimes has to rely on certain exploitative structures that place one still right back in civilization. Also, you can't totally escape it, like Ted Kaczynski. You can't really go off the grid, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, I will say this. Um, a really great book that a friend recommended to me um, about these, I guess, like we might consider the politics of escape. 
check my bookshelf. It's called Shelter from the Machine, and it's by Jason Strange. Um, and he writes about homesteading as a um, this kind of really problematic uh, thing that people do in capitalism, where they sort of live off on the land mm-hmm. and escape civilization. And he kind of he says, look, it's it's both things. It's like it's itself sort of an individual experiment with living that is itself kind of liberatory and is itself also marked by the same capitalism that it's trying to escape. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of both of these things at the same time. And there's nothing really we can do about it. It's a fight that is going to continue. I, I, I recommend that book. It's, it's a great book. It's well-written and it sort of, it really digs into these, um, into these, into these problems. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add about uh, your own book? Um, you know, um, I think that the book was a way for me to try to shatter the stereotype that nostalgia is always reactionary Mm -hmm. and to instead ask questions like, um, well, like I, like I said, um, at the beginning, like what nostalgia is trying to come to like some sort of working definition of it without, without getting too bogged down in the particulars where there's like these types and what have you, but it, it kind of understand kind of what it is and its history. Um, trying to figure out why there's so much of it today, if there really is so much of it compared to other periods in time um, and whether or not that's a good thing and who might be behind it all, you know, um, you know, whether is it just a natural emotional reaction to some really unstable times? Well, yeah, but is it also kind of propagated around the clock like anger is on CNN or Fox News, absolutely. Um, and that was that was the that was the point of of writing the book. And, and in doing so, I was trying to look at the different places that nostalgia shows up, and maybe the places you wouldn't expect, like not just on not just in streaming series like Stranger Things, but also um, in in weird nostalgic phenomena that show up online. Um, how nostalgia might be related to uh, extinction as a concept. Um, uh, we've been dealing with at least the past few years, especially the fight over like in the United States, the fight over like Confederate monuments, but certainly in the UK as well, uh, monuments to slave traders and what have you, and how these are nostalgic gestures and what we might do about them. Um, and that was the, that was the, that was the thrust of the book. And, um, I do hope that, um, people can walk away with it, understanding a little bit more about, about this emotion. Okay. And was I right with the release date there, October 12th? October 12th. That's right. And that's probably best to buy it via Repeater Books website and not um, Jeff Bezos's. The bad place. (laughs) Yeah. um, Unfortunately, people are going to do it, (laughs) you know. Well, they uh, they got free shipping, man. I hear that's pretty good. (laughs) Well, you know, Repeater uh, will have a... um, they will have a, a pre-order link eventually, but there are some pre-order links mm-hmm. um, at other other places, and I do recommend supporting independent bookshops to to purchase the book. Okay, I'll be sure to put uh, links for those in the description. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's a good place to finish up. Uh, Grafton Tanner, thanks very much. Thank you so much.